You are listening to the Accents podcast on WUKY. I am your host, Katerina Stoikova. My guest today is a poet who is on fire. This is Linda Neil Rising. Hi, Linda. Welcome to Accents. Thank you so much for having me. This is quite an honor, Katerina. It is wonderful to have an opportunity to talk to you about your books. Most recently, I read Vivia, the legend of Vivia Thomas, a novelette in poems, published by Kelsey Books. I am really impressed by it, and I have all sorts of questions, but why don't we start with you introducing this book to our listeners? Okay. Um, it, as you said, it is a, a novelette in poems. So although it is written in poetry, it is meant to be read as you would read a novel. So one poem leads into the next poem to tell the entire story. And um, I first heard about Vivia a little over a year ago. It was around Halloween time. And even though I grew up in Oklahoma, I had never heard the legend of Vivia Thomas. And um, I saw something about her and I was very curious. So I started doing some investigating and I found two authors, uh, Wade Burleson and Marilyn Hudson, who had blogs uh, mentioning Vivia. And so they basically just told the general legend. And so I contacted each author and I said, are you writing books about her? Because each of them had written nonfiction books mainly. And right away, Wade uh, answered me and he said, I just could not find out any more information about her. I have done a lot of research and I just cannot find out any more about her. So then I was able to reach Marilyn through uh, Ancestry.com. And she basically said the same thing. She had researched for a long, long time and could not find enough information to do a nonfiction book. And so I explained to them that my book was not going to be a nonfiction book, that I wanted to write a book of poetry about her, but to make it a narrative. And so in a way that freed me up a lot when I realized that these people who had been researching for a long time could not find out little details about her life, because then I was able to just create those details. And uh, I still had a lot of research to do because the book is set right before, during, and after the Civil War. And so I had to research a lot about that period, uh, how the people dressed, just how they uh, even dated, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things like that required a great deal of research. And um, it was very interesting to me, though, that Vivia was a real person. And I made a trek to Fort Gibson in Oklahoma, and I was able to visit her grave because she is uh, buried in the hero's circle at Fort Gibson. And so, as I said, it, she, it was a, a real person. We know certain details about her life, but we just don't know a lot about the beginning. So I was able to give her a backstory. And it was it was a lot of fun. But as I said, as I was I would write the poems and then I would go back and I would go through a, a, the poems line by line, making sure that they were historically accurate. 
For example, in one poem, I uh, said something about, um, I felt as secluded as a figure inside a snow globe. And then something just made me think I'd better check that out to see if snow globes were even popular then. <laughs> and I found out that they were not created then. And so I had to go back and change it to a daguerreotype under glass. And so just little details like that required a great deal of research. But I just found her a fascinating character. Well, I like daguerreotype under glass much better than snow globe <laughs> anyway. Did yes. you try any other genres besides poetry or you always knew that you're gonna write a series of poems about it? I Well, uh, for Vivia, I just wanted to do the poetry and make it into like a novelette form, but I do uh, write fiction. And in fact, I have a book of short stories that's going to be coming out in 2025 through Bell Point Press. And it is a, a book of connected short stories that deal with Route 66. So it's entitled Cigar Box of Loss, Stories from Route 66. And again, they have um, one character who kind of leads the reader through the various stories, but then the stories themselves stand alone. Um, but with Vivian, I felt she needed poetry. So I know I, I read one review and someone said something about that. I really didn't use very many poetic elements in it. And I thought, hmm, I don't use a lot of strict rhythm or rhyme or anything in it. But it, Vivia does have a great deal of internal rhyme. Uh, it has a lot of poetic, poetic elements such as alliteration, uh, repetition, um, just all sorts of things, a literary allusion that can be found in other poems. So although it doesn't have strict rhythm and rhyme, and I think people get so involved in reading the story, they aren't taking apart the poems and looking for those devices. And that's fine with me. I want them to enjoy the story as they're reading and not worry about that sort of thing. I consider Vivia a feminist book. What do you think? It is definitely a feminist book. <laughs> I'm glad that you said that. I wanted Vivia, um, and not just Vivia, but some of the other women in the book too. Uh, her uh, governess, for example, Miss Janice. Uh, the, I wanted them to be strong characters. And Vivia is definitely a very strong character. Um, she, of course, is a product of her time and place of when she was born and where she grew up and everything. But then um, she really takes everything into her own hands and uh, wants to change her life or wants to determine her own direction of her life. And even um, the parts about her, the, her father's business. I wanted to stress the fact that even though she wasn't allowed to be a part of that the way her brother was, that secretly she was. And that she had really more um, going for her as far as the business um, than her brother did. That she had she knew numbers, for example, better than her brother did and was able to do uh, the bookkeeping and things better than her brother did. But because she was a woman at that time, of course, she wasn't allowed to be seen in that light. But I definitely think that it is a, 
uh, it's definitely a woman's book. <laughs> what was it like to visit her grave? First of all, a friend and I went when it was about 106 degrees. So it was very, very, very warm. And we had no trouble at all finding her grave. I also looked for the grave of her um, lover because I had heard, I had gotten a name that I use in the book. And I did find a name that was similar to that. Uh, he was of lower rank than what I gave him and Vivian. But it was so very warm that day that we ended up not being able to find his grave, even though we we thought we knew where it was located. But seeing her grave uh, was, it was a little bit surreal, but it, it was very touching as well. Her uh, marker does not say much. It just has her name and the date of her death. It doesn't even have the date of her birth. And that's why it's been such a mystery about who she was. But it, uh, I am so glad that I went and I took pictures and everything. I actually thought about putting a picture in the book, but I didn't, a picture of her grave. But uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. And I felt like she was there supporting me as I was finishing this book because it was right at the very end of the book when I was getting ready to start sending it out. And I I know a friend of mine said, I think you channeled her in this book. And I, I felt that way uh, when I visited her grave. I felt like she was giving me the okay to finish the book and to put her name out there. Talk about historical facts versus imagination in this book. Was it fun? to provide this backstory with all this research? Uh, the first book that I did that was very similar in nature as far as um, taking something from history and then adding to it was my book, um, Stone Roses. And I don't know whether you have read this or not, but Stone Roses was based upon the WPA interviews that were done with Oklahoma women pioneers in the 1930s. And a lot of the women who were interviewed were elderly women, and they told stories, not only their stories about when they were younger, but stories of their mothers and grandmothers. So some of these stories were way back in the 1800s. And some of the interviews were nothing more than just uh, what I call little blurbs. They were very, very short. And I would read these interviews and I would think, I want to know more. I want more of a story about this woman. And so I took their stories. I kept the uh, ethnicities that they had written. They, they were anonymous, let me say that. They were not names in the interviews. So what I did was to do research of names that were popular in the years they were born because it had... Uh, the years they were born, and their ethnicities. And those were the only ways they were identified in the interviews. So I kept those, and then I gave them names. And I then um, added to their stories. So I took their stories as like the, the kernel of truth. 
And then I elaborated, added to, I would research if someone mentioned something that happened, I would research that incident and then I could flesh out the story more. And so that was really, and it, Stone Roses has done, um, I, I've been very, very happy with it. Let's put it that way. It won the Western Heritage Book Award and was a finalist for, um, was a finalist for the Will Award. And so I've been very, very happy with it. But I felt like I wanted to take it a step further. So with Vivia, it was almost like taking one of these women and telling her entire story. Um, so it, I could go much more in depth. I, I like the idea. Uh, I love history and I love genealogy and that sort of thing. So I've enjoyed both doing both of those books, a combination of fact and then fiction uh, adding to it. Unfortunately, I haven't read Stone Roses, but about Vivia, I can I can say that it's a page turner. Love, hopes, <laughs> secrets, violence, legend. Do you care to put several sentences, summarize her story, or you don't want to give give it out? I don't want to give a whole other plot away. Okay. But basically, it is about a young woman of privilege who is born in Boston, and her father um, is very, very well. Her family is very, very well to do. Uh, she is brought up by a um, woman named Miss Janice, who is her governess. First, she has a, a maid who is uh, a dean, and she is her first nurse. And then, of course, she graduates to a governess. And it is from the governess that she learns to be sort of a, a just a different type of spirit from most of the girls who were uh, of her age during that time. She has a lot more freedom with Miss Janice than a lot of her friends would have. She teaches her to think for herself and to be a strong woman. Um, she then um, goes to a, a school uh, for girls and she learns all the things that the girls of that time period were taught, uh, things like sewing, and uh, you know how to be a lady. Uh, all the the, the it was a charm school basically, and learning how to be the type of woman that the men of that era of a certain class would want to marry. And then, of course, uh, the story goes on from there. And um, I don't want to give a whole lot away, but <laughs> I would love for you to read a couple of poems. Okay. My birth, 1840. My grandmother once told me when my mother was not near, for such matters were not discussed among ladies, that I was born without breath, blue as the moon on the Boston snow that night in January, when I made my entrance into this world. The doctor, a friend of my father's, would have declared me dead had it not been for the quick action of an Irish girl hired as a wet nurse only the day before, after her child had succumbed to a fever at two weeks of age. 
Aideen was her name, and she took my limp body in her rough hands, chafed my chest. Then according to grandmother, she put her mouth to my lips, breathed her own life into mine, sang a Hail Mary every time she raised her head to draw a breath. My family was not Catholic, and her words surely sounded like a spell, an incantation, as she called to her holy mother, desperate to save this baby, a baby not of her womb. Her magic worked, and I gasped air, screamed my way into this life. Perhaps, as I look back now, it would have been better if the peasant girl had wrapped me in the soft shawl my mother had knitted, had hurried from the house to bury me beside her little one, maybe making a bargain with her gods, an exchange of one child for another, a soul for a soul, one much worthier than mine. And then uh, this next one is entitled Torn Away. How strange the passage of time when one is a child. Long, languorous days of summer, sun-silken and warm, dappling through elms. Hours crawl like common garden snails, content to inch from peony stalk to dahlia stem. Drowsy dreams fill the daylight like a sated bee dozing inside a blossom. I remember thinking my blessed life would always be like this. Even my mother, cold in her affections most of the time, would stroke my hair as I lay my head on her lap, as we lounged on a wicker settee under an arbor of wisteria. Five summers passed in this way. One day, as I plucked a rose for Aideen, she brought her hands to her face and wept, great breathless sobs caught in her throat, and I asked if a thorn had pierced her hand. She drew me to her, saying no, her heart was pierced instead. Our time together was coming to an end. I was no longer a baby in need of nurture, but a child old enough to learn real lessons, reading, writing, all of the wonders she had never known. Within the week, a governess would be arriving to take her place. I placed my face against her cheek and sent up a howl that filled the August air, but nothing would ever fill my own emptiness. These are so beautiful, Linda. Thank, Thank you so much you. for 
reading poems from Vivia, the legend of Vivia Thomas, a novel Latin poems. I hope our listeners do look it up. But now I want to ask you about your chapbook. You have a chapbook coming up any moment now, and it's another award winner. Tell us about it. Uh, it I just received the copy this week, uh, about a couple days ago. And this was um, the Beyond Words Poetry Chapbook winner. Um, and it was published in um, Berlin, Germany. So it was published um, by uh, someone in another country, which was a real thrill for me. Both covers, I have to say, I have to shout out the artist who did the covers for my last two books, uh, Perpetual Astonishment and Vivia were both uh, done by a German artist. And uh, her name uh, is uh, Katrin Weiss-Stein. And she uh, does absolutely fabulous work. So I was uh, I was thrilled that she agreed to let me use this uh, wonderful picture on the front for Perpetual Astonishment, which is the name of this book. So if you don't mind, I would like to read a couple uh, poems from it. It's divided into three sections. And the first one uh, refers a lot to nature in one way or another and uh, human relationships to nature. The second part has a lot of Native American poems in it. And then the third one deals with memory. Uh, so I'll start out reading a couple of these nature poems that are in the, the opening. And this first one is entitled, After Learning That a Woman and Her Baby Were Killed in the Bombing of a Ukrainian Maternity Hospital. Each spring, a cardinal resurrects her nest in the spirea bush outside our library window. Patient in her pursuits, she scavenges wheat straws from fallow fields, dried pine needles, tiny twigs. The cupped cradle perched on forked branches clings there, awaiting the clutch of eggs to come the soft songs she will croon as she broods. But this morning, inside a flower bed, just beginning to fill with green spears of daffodils, her remains, feathers so pale a red, they verge on pink, color of water tinged with blood. We have heard the owl each night claiming this territory, the same old story of the strong taking what they want. And now he has left behind nothing but pinions, as if some tiny angel tumbled to earth, slipped off her wings and chose to walk all the way back to heaven. And, um, this second one I'm going to be reading is the title poem. And I've had a lot of people say, oh, I love the title of your book. And I really can't take credit for it uh, because it is from a quotation by Kurt Vonnegut. And of course, I give him credit for that in the book. Uh, it starts with a quotation from A Man Without a Country by Kurt Vonnegut. 
And it says, I belong to an unholy disorder. We call ourselves Our Lady of Perpetual Astonishment. And so this poem is entitled Perpetual Astonishment. Perhaps there is something holy after all in this unholy disorder around us. Note the spider, blood as blue as the virgin's robe, building a cathedral of orb webs, or the honeybee sipping communion from the rose of Sharon, hovering member of an angel host, its wings practicing ascension as they beat 200 times per second. Listen to an exaltation of larks or watch an order of starlings in their shiny cassocks chanting in notes too high for humans to hear. Congregate among the Douglas fir or the cedars biblical in size and know they confess in tongues known only to them seek redemption. Look up into the vault of the night sky where stars sing their own requiem and when they die, scatter their cores into space, seeds for a new generation. Let us all kneel at this altar, learn the lessons of the supernova to pass along the amazement of this world, to never forget to worship at the grotto of Our Lady of Perpetual Astonishment. These are lovely, Linda. Thank you so much for reading them for our listeners. And also congratulations on your latest chapbook. I mean, you have two new books right now and you have another one coming next year. How about that? My next question for you is that you are a citizen of the Western Cherokee Nation. How has that influenced your writing? It has influenced me a great deal. As I said, I love history and I, I love uh, genealogy. And I uh, grew up always knowing that my family was part Cherokee. My father's family was part Cherokee. But I did not grow up, even though I grew up in Oklahoma, I did not grow up um, with the language, which I think uh, takes away a lot if you've never heard the language. I uh, really did not know a whole lot about our family other than I knew that they had traveled to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. We did not practice um, a lot of the traditional ceremonies and things. So I really felt uh, sort of lost and kind of caught between two worlds and always wanted to know more about the, the Cherokee heritage And so um, I've done a great deal of research. I've learned a lot about my family. I have had the opportunity to visit uh, my family home place, I guess you would say, which is uh, in southern Tennessee, right across the Georgia border. And it's where my family lived uh, shortly before uh, being sent to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. And they had a plantation there. They um, owned the ferry, 
And so when the removal started, uh, the Cherokees were brought to stockades that were about 20 miles from uh, Blythe Landing, which was where they lived. Uh, their name was Blythe. It was a, a marriage between a white man and a Cherokee woman. Uh, my family is that way through generations that uh, many times the Cherokee women would marry white men. And so my family has been mixed for many, many years. And then after, when they were ready then to start the, the actual removal, the actual trail, of course, there was a lot of people don't understand Trail of Tears was not just one trail. Uh, there were many uh, different uh, trails to Oklahoma. Uh, but anyway, they would then move the people to Blythe Landing and they would camp on my family's land. And then my family would take them across the Hwasi River to begin the Trail of Tears. And then uh, I think that my family, from what I've read, really thought that they were going to be exempt for some reason. They thought if they stayed there long enough, uh, because they were rather influential, I think they thought that they would be able allowed to stay, but they were not. And so then, of course, they uh, made their way to Oklahoma. And that's why I was born there. Tell us about your further research uh, family origins. I know that you have traced it all the way to nobility in Europe. Tell us who yes. is uh, Ludwig Grant. Yes, he was a, a Scotsman who um, fought on the losing side of the Second Jacobite Uprising, and he was imprisoned. And then uh, he was finally sent to what is now the United States as an indentured servant. And after he had done his time as an indentured servant, then he traveled to Tennessee. And that is where he started trading with the Cherokees. And he ended up marrying the uh, daughter of the Cherokee chief. And so I think that something like 80% of the Cherokees who live in uh, Oklahoma or who went to Oklahoma, I think were descended in some way from Ludovic Grant. Uh, but anyway, he was one of my ancestors. He's very interesting. And uh, we have all kinds of letters and things that he wrote because he was a very educated man. And he uh, was trying to speak up for the Cherokee Nation. And so he would write all kinds of letters to the government uh, trying to uh, keep that, their, their, their land there. And of course he wasn't successful, but he was a very influential man of his time. Your third grade teacher, you handed this teacher a short story you wrote and what happened? The first short story I ever wrote was in the third grade. And when I turned it in, the uh, teacher asked me to stay after class. I guess she had read them the night before. And so I stayed after and she said, who wrote this story? And I was a, an extremely, extremely shy child. And I immediately started crying because I could tell she was accusing me of something. And I said, well, I wrote the story. And she said, no, I want to know who wrote the story. And I said, well, I wrote the story. And finally, I think I was crying so much, she finally believed me. And she looked at me and she said, well, it's very good. And it was really the first time that that particular teacher had ever praised me for anything. 
And so I thought, okay, if she thinks it's good, then this must be a good story. And that was really a turning point for me because I thought, okay, I want to write. So it was really, I mean, I would have been eight years old when I decided I wanted to write. And then I started writing poetry when I was probably about 11 or 12. And I remember that I, I always read poetry. My mother belonged to a, a book club and every month she would get books. And I, the book that I read over and over was uh, a book of poetry that was Byron Keats and Shelley. And I was just fascinated for some reason with that book of Byron Keats and Shelley. And it had a combination of their poems. I loved the, the some of the words I didn't even understand, but I loved the, the sound and the rhythm and the rhyme and different things. So when I started writing, um, I wrote very rhyming and rhythmical poems, the first ones that I wrote. And I, I wish I had kept most of those. I remember the beginning of one of the first ones I wrote, and I don't remember a whole lot about it, but it was just like, um, do you know what it's like to be a ghost, to throw a ghost party and be the host? Well, it all can be fun on a certain day when trick or treat all the children say. And then it goes on, you know, it went on and on. But I don't really remember a whole lot about it. And then, of course, when I hit junior high and high school, I found free verse because Rod McEwen was very, very popular at that time. And when I started reading free verse, I was like, okay, this is really different. You know, I don't have to do all the rhyming and all of that. And so um, I, I always wrote all the way through junior high and high school. I, and I did save a lot of those poems. And I taught for many years. And for 27 years, I taught at the eighth grade level. So I would bring in poems that I wrote when I was 14 years old. And I would read the poems aloud. And I would always tell the kids, I want to read to you what I wrote when I was your age or approximately your age, because I don't want you to make the same mistakes I did. And I'll never forget one day I read this horrible poem. I mean, it was bad, very, very mushy. And after I read it, uh, there was a boy in the back who raised his hand, said, Mrs. Rising. And I said, yes. And he said, I thought that was really good. And I said, and that's why you need to be in this class. <laughs> because it was not really good. It was really bad. Uh, but I still have that folder. And it's very interesting to uh, look back. I had written a lot about uh, the Vietnam War. I, it's just interesting even to see how my handwriting was changing through the years. And to see the development of my writing and the thought process. But I'm really glad that I did not get any of those poems published. <laughs> but it sounds like you did please your audience. <laughs> I have one last question for you. And that is, what is the most important thing you teach your students? If you want them to remember one thing from your class or your workshop, what is it? Don't be afraid to try. Because I think so many kids, uh, I, I saw this in so many writers, they were afraid to try anything new. Uh, or they were, they were afraid to find their own voices or anything like that. And I would say, just try. Whatever you do, try. 
And sometimes I think they really surprised themselves uh, with their finished product. Uh, I think sometimes we're our own worst enemies. I think we are our, our own worst critics. And so I would always try to um, give them the self-confidence to try. Uh, so I, I think that would be it. That would be my advice to them, at least try. Thank you so much, Linda, for talking to me today and sharing poems with our listeners. No, thank you so much for having me. It was great.